Will you open your Bible, please, to Joshua 14? Joshua chapter 14. And then when you're turning, would you also turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 20? Joshua chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 20. Joshua 14, we begin with verse 6. And in Matthew chapter 20, I hope you have your finger there, we'll turn. We're going to begin there with verse 1. And the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee and Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty years and forty and five years, even since the Lord spoke this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakim was there, and that the cities were great and fortified, if so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto the day this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And in Matthew chapter 20, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man that is a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius, and you might write in the margin of your Bible, a denarius was equivalent roughly in our day to $20. A sixpence in English, in the English measure, but about $20, it was a day's labor. And he sent him into his vineyard. He went out about the third hour, nine o'clock, and set, saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth hour, twelve o'clock, noon, and did the same. 
And about the eleventh hour, five p.m., he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, that shall ye receive. So when evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a denarius, twenty dollars. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise also received every, month, every man a denarius, twenty dollars. And when they had received it, they murmured against the householders, saying, These last have worked but one hour. Thou hast made them equal unto us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I did do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a denarius? Take what is thine, and go thy way, and I will give it unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. We're in a series of messages during these days, culminating on the second Sunday of, e of April, on great experiences and epics in the closing days of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. These will cover roughly chapters 19 through 28 of Matthew and the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke and John. And tonight, the message, I want that mountain, is a message on laborers and the rewards. This morning we outlined what we understand Jesus to have taught concerning missions of mercy or the meaning of discipleship. You remember that we said a disciple is a man under orders. He is a man in a hurry. He is a man with a mission. And he is a man with a message and a man with a warning. That's what a disciple is. Now, the disciple is a laborer also. He is a laborer in the Lord's vineyard. And the Lord has given us a great assignment, a great task to do. One of the great illustrations in the scripture of a disciple is the Old Testament illustration of Caleb. When Caleb said, I want that mountain, he was saying something that every one of us can say from his heart. And when we say it, we need to count what we're saying. We need to recognize what we're saying when we say, I want that mountain. And each of us might conjure up in his own heart some different picture, something a little bit different because the Lord speaks to every one of us in a different way. And it's my prayer tonight that all of us here will hear something more than the voice of this preacher but that we shall hear the voice of God speaking each man to his own heart. A hill or a mountain or mountains are terms that are roughly synonymous in the English Bible. Much of Palestine was hilly and mountainous. Not dramatically high, but just like old worn out hills, those mountains in Palestine, hills, we would call them, not anything to compare 
with the great Cumberland Mountains or the great Smoky Mountains or even the mountains that surround the nestling villages of, of Pineville or Corbin or London, but more like the mountains on which our hospital is built or the mountain on which Western is built. We call them hills. The Scripture would call them mountains, for Palestine was filled with mountains like those. The central hill country of Palestine stretched from north to south, attaining its greatest elevation in Galilee, nearly 4,000 feet above sea level. The only real mountain that would compare to any mountain we know here in America is Mount Hermon, which towered 9,100 feet above sea level and is snow-capped all the year long. And some of those who visited Palestine with us several years ago will recall standing at Capernaum or being on the Sea of Galilee crossing that sea in the boat. And we looked far to the north in the distance and we saw the Mount Hermon with its snow caps reaching heavenward. Many ancient people believed that the mountains were holy places. The Scripture suggests two mountains that tower above all the other mountains. One is Mount Sinai, the Mount of the Law-Giving. And it was there that Moses went to receive the law of God. He came back from that mountain to give to the world the one great law upon which every civilization has been built in all of history the Ten Commandments. The other mountain of Scripture that is so famous is Mount Zion. Mount Zion was the great city of the king, and it was from that city that David ruled, and that city, that Mount Zion, became symbolic of heaven. And it was to Mount Zion that the Scriptures refer when they speak of heaven, and they speak of our arriving at last at Mount Zion, standing on Zion's hill. Over at Camp Joy, we have a hill we call Mount Zion. And on that hill is a cross. Many people do not know that that cross originally was a cross of witness, a cross of preaching, a cross pointing people to Jesus. The original cross that stood at, Mount, at Camp Joy at Mount Zion was made and built by Johnny Deacons. And it was built especially for our Teen Time Pavilion at the fair a number of years ago when he was a student there, and that was a long time ago. And some of our young preacher boys helped him, and they went over there to the fair at Southern Kentucky Fair and erected that huge cross that towered above everything at the Southern Kentucky Fair, pointing men to Jesus. And when the fair was over, it was transferred over to Camp Joy. Later that cross was destroyed in a windstorm. Others have been built there. But it's interesting to note that the mountains, though they do not have to be huge mountains, have stood for spiritual symbolic truths. The mountains of Scripture are symbolic. They symbolize eternity. They symbolize the strength and stability of God. They symbolize difficult obstacles in a person's life. And sometimes those Mountains symbolize lifetime goals, and so it was with Caleb. Caleb was an unusual man in the Scripture, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, 
the prince of Judah who represented his tribe and among the 12 chief men that Moses sent into the wilderness of Paran to seek out the land and spy out the land to see if Israel was able to conquer that nation. That story is told in Numbers chapter 13. And all of us here remember that they were Baptists. They depended on the majority. Ten of those people came back saying, there are giants in the land, the Anakim are there, and there are big cities, and they're walled and fenced, and we can't go in. We're like little grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do anything. Oh, Caleb and Joshua, 40 years old, went in there and said, we're well able. God said to do it. I'd rather have God on my side telling me what to do and do it even though it seems impossible than to listen to human sense and human reason. Those 10 said we can't do it and the two said we can. But they listened to the 10. And those 10 persuaded the people of Israel to turn their back on God, to refuse to do what God said to do by faith. So they turned away from Paran. They turned away from Kadesh Barnea, went out into the wilderness and wandered aimlessly for 40 long years until all of that generation died except, except God's two men, Caleb and Joshua. He and Joshua together brought that minority report encouraging the people to do what God said to do. 40 years go by. Forty years, a long time. Some of you who look at some of us who are 40 years or older and you say, well, they look like they've lived here forever. Forty years seems a long time, doesn't it? You wait till you can start remembering 40 years. Sometimes seems longer, doesn't it? I see some heads nodding. Well, Caleb was 40 years old when he went into Paran and said, we're able to do it. Forty years went by, and then it took them some years to conquer the land of Canaan after they went into the land of Canaan. And now, Caleb is 85 years old. <laughs> and he comes into the presence of Joshua. He says, I want that mountain. It's as if Joshua said, what mountain are you talking about? Caleb said, you know what mountain it is. You know what mountain it is. Forty years ago, 45 years ago, I went down there to Paran. And they said there were giants there and fenced cities and the Anakim were there and they said it can't be done. I said it could. And I want to go in there and prove that God was right all along. Joshua said, all right. 85-year-old Caleb went into Hebron. Some of you who were in Palestine, Remember Hebron, that's the town where they rushed us in just at twilight. We got out of the bus to go up there and look at Cave of Machpelah and the guide said, you can't go in there, but Johnny Deacons did. <laughs> and then the guide said, you gotta get back on that bus and rush out of town, they're gonna, the Arabs will shoot us. We all got back on the bus and started counting noses, and guess who wasn't there? <laughs> the guy chewed his fingernails and pulled his hair, and he said, we got to hurry. Somebody went back and got Johnny and brought him. 
And that bus went out through the city of, through the city of Hebron 60 miles an hour to get us out of there safely. And we learned later that another bus carrying some pilgrims through there, somebody was shot and killed in that same time. Well, that's where Caleb was. He went up in that mountain. Now, it was a mountain more like Western University. It was a mountain more like Hospital Hill. It was not like a mountain like Mount Hermon or the Smoky Mountains. It was a hill. And Caleb said, I want that mountain. It represents a lifetime goal to me. I want that. And he got it. What do you want out of life? What is it that are the lifetime goals to you? What mountain do you really want? Well, I want to suggest three tonight. Number one, I want the determination of a Caleb. That's the mountain I want. I want the determination of a Caleb. Caleb who, was dare, who dared to see what God wanted and then he said, God, whatever you want, that's what I want, and I'm going to spend my life doing what you want me to do. Years ago, I saw on a billboard of a church that said, the cost of low living is very high. Anybody can live a low life. Anybody can live a tawdry life. Anybody can live a cheap life. Anybody can live a self-serving life. But it takes somebody with the determination of a Caleb to say there's a mountain I want. And it's tough. And it's difficult. But by the grace of God, I'll get it. For God's glory. I think a determination of a Caleb could be unleashed in some young people's lives here tonight. And you could say, by the grace of God, I want the mountain of a Christian home. I want that more than I want any other kind of home. I want a Christian home. And dear friend, if you set that as one of the mountains of life that you really want, it will change many things about your teenage years. Instead of saying, well, I have wild oats to sow. I'm only young once. And so I'll do whatever I want to do now. You will preserve your strength. The strength of youth we lay at Jesus' feet today will be the theme of your life. Instead of going with any old Tom, Dick, and Harry girls, you will set standards for the guy, the Prince Charming in your life. And you'll say, the boy that I go with has to be the kind of boy, first of all, that I'd want to marry. Secondly, he has to be the kind of boy that I'd want to be the father of my children. Now, some of you teenagers look around the church and you find some of these married couples that have a little baby. And you think, what kind of a daddy? Would I want a husband that would be a daddy like that man? Some of you would say, Yes, I know a young man who is a daddy in this church and I'd like to have a husband like him. Now, don't you go after that woman's husband. He's already been taken. But you find somebody 
and you determine with all your soul and mind and heart, I'm not going to stop for less. Now, it will mean setting some standards and setting some limitations. And there'll be some off limits and some on limits. And guys, you look around and find some precious, beautiful, sweet girl. And you find out, is she the kind of girl that I'd want to live with and look across the table at every morning for 50 years? Whether she has curlers in her hair or not. Whether she's had time to put on her lipstick and makeup or not. Is she? Is she really the kind of girl that I believe could be the godly Christian mother that I want my little children to have? Is she? Or is she some tawdry, cheap kind of person that sucks on cigarettes, <laughs> blows smoke in your face and in the child's face too? Or is she the kind of girl that any boy could paw all over, get anything out of her he wanted? I want that mountain, and I'm determined to have it. I think of a young man in our church who's now a wonderful husband and a wonderful daddy and a wonderful preacher. He's pastor of a church now. Many times we talked. I like to talk to young people. I like to sort of get inside their hearts and find out what they're thinking, what their ideals, their goals, their lifetime ambitions. This young man said, I want a wife who can be a helpmate, who can love Jesus more than I more than she loves me and somebody who will understand when I put Jesus first in my life. We knelt down on the study floor. It was back in the old study. There's a little cubby hole back over there. And we prayed that God would give him that kind of wife. And he got her. I want that mountain the mountain of a Christian home. Oh, you can have it. You can have it. If you'll determine that you're not going to settle for less. And if you'll decide that you're going to wait until God puts you together. You can have it. And Lord, I want that mountain of a life that can be given to Christ and can fulfill the will of God for my life. I don't want to take God's second best, I want His first best for me. We have a wonderful God. We were talking in training tonight how precious it is to be a Christian. How wonderful to know the Lord. And I want to tell you we have a merciful, wonderful God. And God so many, many times in His mercy, in His grace, moves in on our lives and when we have messed up he will give us the second best. And he's such a gracious God that as far as we're concerned, it seems like it's the first best, but we never could know what God could have done 
had we really given him the first best years before. Somebody said the bird with a broken pinion never soared so high again. I want to challenge young people tonight to give to God the strength of your youth and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to preserve myself so that you can use me lock, stock, and barrel for thy glory. And I'll not have to take God's second best, but I'll be in on his first best for me, his prime basic will for me. You can do that if you'll be like Caleb and say, I want that mountain, Lord. Now, it will mean some off-limits. It will be some subtractions and additions and multiplications and divisions in your life. There will need to be subtracted from our lives the tawdry, cheap, ugly things. Yeah, to mom and dad. No, mom and dad. Honey, will you help me with the dishes? Oh, I want to watch television tonight. If you find yourself in that category, before your mother or daddy has to slap you over, why don't you go into a closet of prayer and say, Lord, take that attitude out of my mind and out of my life. Subtract that from me so I can be the kind of young man, young woman, who will first of all be an example in my home to my parents. And to my God. And I'd like to just ask young people to take permanently out of your vocabulary, yah and naw, and say yes sir and no sir. Yes ma'am and no ma'am. Anybody want to say amen to that? Amen. I don't understand why parents let you get by with it. Yeah, no. My dad said if you ever say that to your mother, you'll regret it. I did it once and I learned what it meant to regret it. <laughs> it means if you're going to give the strength of your youth to Christ, it means subtracting from your life rebellion. It means subtracting from your life tawdriness. It means subtracting from your life youthful lusts. Paul said, flee youthful lust. See how far away from them you can get. The problem most young people have today is they see how close to youthful lust they can get and still keep their eyes on Jesus. The problem is you can't do it. I heard Billy Graham say one time to young people, the safest distance between a young man and a young woman is the distance with a Bible between you. Try it. Pray together. Read the Word of God together. Close your dates with prayer. It's hard to pray and read the Bible and commit fornication all at the same time. You said it's pretty frank. Yeah. That He can have first prior claim on you and you can say, I want that now. Dr. Robert G. Lee is 90 years old. Now, I want to tell you something. Some of you won't call names and won't point, but some of you, when he comes, you say, oh, I don't know, we've had him over and over again. You know who says that usually? It's the adults. Isn't that interesting? The kids love him. The young people sit on the edge of their seat and listen, a 90-year-old man, how come? 
because Robert G. Lee, in the early days of his life, built a strong body. Young people, I believe it's worth the investment to get weights, learn how to pull up weights, have a strong body, build a strong body. Dr. Lee went down and worked on the, Pan Pan the, the Panama Canal, helped build it. You say, well, that really dates him. You had canals that old? Yes, sir. And he, he, he built into his life purity and strength. He said to his wife on their honeymoon, honey, I don't mean to be mean to you, but you'll never have first place in my life. She looked at him. She said, what do you mean by that? He said, honey, Jesus has first place in my life, and he always will. I dare you young men, you young women, to so build into your life character and purity and a reverence toward God and a reverence and respect toward authority and toward parents that you can say, I want that mountain of a life that God can use. And then parents, adults, could you sort of be like Caleb and say, I want that mountain, Lord. I want the kind of life that a son or daughter growing up in my home or watching me in the church or watching me in my business or my factory, that son or daughter, that young person could emulate my life and I'd lead him to a godly life. One of the hard things for me to understand as a pastor as a teenager, as a young person, as a child, was those people that said to me when I was little, don't smoke. The very ones that said that were puffing away at their cigarettes. And I would have an idea that many young people learn to do this because they look at adults. I have an idea that many young people have a disregard or a low opinion of marriage because they look at mom and dad who argue and fuss in the home all the time. Now, I realize that moms and dads and husbands and wives can't hardly live together without having some disagreements, but you could have your disagreements in a closet, couldn't you? Not drag it all out and hang it all out in front of the children. Amen. Sure. Moms and dads, be the kind of man, the kind of woman that you could say, I want my kids, I want the young people, I want the teenagers to be able to look at me. I'll be an example of what they'd like to be like. I want that mountain. I want that mountain. The spirit of Caleb. Secondly, I want the spirit of Jesus. The spirit that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 20 in the passage we read a little while ago. And I think there are a number of things to remember about this passage. It's a strange parable. It tells about a certain man that had some land and had a lot of jobs to offer. And he found some people idle. Now, the idleness did not mean that they didn't want to work. The picture is sort of a marketplace, and the marketplace was where men in those days went with their tools in the morning to hire out. 
And many, many went. They were laborers. And sometimes a person who had jobs would come, and he would choose this man and this man and this man and this man and this man, and then there would be others left. This is sort of the picture. They were reporting. They were there. They were ready. They wanted to work, but there was no work for them, for some of them. So the man came along, and early in the morning, about 6 o'clock in the morning, he got some men to go to work, and he said, I'll give you $20 for the day's work. A little bit later, 9 o'clock, he came back and saw some others still standing there and said, well, I'll give you $20 for the work. You come on and work. At noontime, he came back and saw those men standing there, and he, he said, well, you want something to do? And they got to work also. And then at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the day was over at 6. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he said, uh, he came back and he saw some men standing there and said, why do you stand idle all the day? And the men said, well, nobody hired us. And so the man said, will you come and work for me? And they went out and worked one hour. The day was over. And the accounting time came. They all came. The man who worked one hour was given $20. The man who went to work at noon was given $20. The man who went to work at 9 o'clock was given $20. The man who went to work at 6 o'clock in the morning was given $20. And being human, they began to grumble. You ever grumbled? Ever complained? You ever been on a strike? They don't give me enough wages. You ever felt like your, un your employer was unfair to you? I'm getting on, I'm, I'm beginning to meddle tonight, you know, a little bit. All right, what did Jesus say that all this meant? First of all, I think he was saying this is a warning to the disciples. Seniority does not count. Just because you went out there and worked all day, that doesn't give you the opportunity to disagree with what I do with this man who just came at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I want that kind of spirit. It's good for me. It's not good for me to look at one man, look at another man, and compare him and say, oh, I'm not being treated fair. See, I want the spirit of Jesus. And I'm saying, Lord, I want that mountain, the spirit of Jesus, that was willing to say to those men, you need to have the kind of attitude that does not stress seniority. You know, sometimes in the church, we think that because we've been here for years and years and years, we have more rights than somebody else who just came. Well, that isn't true. In the Lord's church, there's no preeminence placed on seniority. By the same token, a person who just comes at the 11th hour has no right to look at the person who's been in here and borne the heat and the toil of the day and said, well, he's old and foggy, he doesn't know what he's doing, he, let's do it my way. You see, it's not that way at all. I want that mountain that would say, give me the spirit of Jesus. Secondly, I think he was giving a warning to the Jews. The Jews said they were God's chosen people, and they were. But I think that he was saying, Jews, just because you're somebody, doesn't hold a lot of weight with God because God loves everybody. Just because you're black doesn't mean God loves you more than he does white people. Just because you're white doesn't mean God loves you more than he does black people. Just because you're born in America doesn't mean that he loves you more than he does the people who were born in China or Japan. Just because you're saved and you're on your way to heaven doesn't mean that God loves you more than he does those people behind closed doors out here who do not know the Lord. He loves them all. And so he wants us to go after them, to bring them by faith to Christ. And then I think 
He was saying, regardless of when you come to Christ, you're equally dear to God. There's an interesting thing in the, in the book of Revelation. Have you ever noticed the holy city has 12 gates? Some of those gates are on the east. Some of those gates are on the west. Now I realize that there are many truths involved there, but I wonder if it would be too symbolic, symbolizing or spiritualizing too much to say that perhaps those east gates stand for people, the open door to the city of God for people who come when they're young in the dawn of life. And the west gates stand for people who come in the sunset years of life. And they can all come to the city of God because there are open doors. Whenever a person will, he may come. Sometimes we say, well, you know, we get a little bit angry with God. We say, well, God, here's a person that dies when he's 85 or 90 years old, and why he's had all these years to do the work that he had to do. And uh, oh my, just think of all the things that he got to do in life. And he got to experience this, and he got to do this, and he got to finish his mission, and, and the mission is completed. And then we find somebody that's taken when they're 16 or 8 or somebody when they're 41. And we say, Lord, that doesn't seem quite fair. This other guy got to live 85 years and do all of his work, and here's somebody who was taken right in the prime of life before he ever had a chance to even live. I want the Spirit of Jesus that can say, Lord, I know your wisdom is past my understanding, and your will is beyond anything that I could ever understand. Whether you take somebody dear to me when they're 16 or 8 or 41 or 85, it's all right. Because I have enough confidence in you to know that you've done it righteously. You've done it the right way. You've done it right. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. But I know you're right. And so I want the Spirit of Jesus that can say, Lord, I trust you. I want that mountain. Last of all, I wish I could talk longer because I have so many things to say. You know, I realize that tonight I speak to people who have all kinds of heartaches, heartbreaks. There's not one person in our midst whose life hasn't been touched by some kind of sorrow, some kind of hurt. There are people here tonight whose little children have been taken in death. There are people here tonight whose teenage children have been taken in death. There are people here tonight whose adult children have been taken in death. There are people who have lost brothers and sisters. There are people who have lost mom and dad. There are people here tonight whose mother died when they were just a little child. Or daddy died. Or there are people here tonight who never did know who their father was. There are people here tonight who don't live with their mother or their father. There are kids here tonight who would give anything if they could have a home like some others have, if they had a mother and daddy both in the home. I realize that there are many faces and many various hurts. But I want to say, 
my Jesus is sufficient for every hurt. And I want the mountain that enables me to say, Lord, regardless of the trial, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the hurt, regardless of the sorrow, I'm going to trust you with it. I'm going to let God rule my life. And then I want the kind of, I want that mountain that looks forward to the homecoming. In the dawning after a while, there's an old song that says we're going down the valley one by one with our faces toward the setting of the sun. Well, I want the kind of mount, I want the faith that would have the faith of, of Caleb who could say, Lord, I want that mountain that looks forward to being promoted. Not afraid of it, not scared of it, but looks forward to it. You know, I'm not really in any hurry to die. <laughs> I wish I could live until the Lord comes. I think sometimes I may. He may come today. I thought he would come yesterday. I'm sure he'll come next week. Jesus is coming again. But if he doesn't, you know, I don't know that I really want an old undertaker to get hold of my body. I know that sounds morbid. I'd like to be promoted. I'd like to be translated, to be in his presence. But I want to tell you, I am not afraid to die. I love Christ. And if death should come tonight as I lie down and go to sleep and I never wake up in this world, I look forward to being with the Lord. Have you ever, have you ever lay down and just tried to visualize what would it be like if your eyes closed in death tonight? How would you feel? Would you be afraid? Would you be scared? Would you have so many loose ends and so many things that you'd say, oh, I just don't want to die and leave all this stuff on them. You know what? Silly, silly thing that I do. Just let you in on a little thing in my heart. It bothers me. You, you, you've let me live in that lovely apartment that you've given me, and I appreciate it. It bothers me to leave my home in the morning without making my bed. You know why, partly why? Because if I don't come back, I'd hate for some of you to come out there and have to find an unmade bed. I hate to leave old dirty dishes in the, in the sink because if I don't get back there, I'd hate for some of you to have to come out there and wash those old dirty dishes. Now, my whole life, I've asked God, Lord, let me be like that. One of the great burdens that I have is unanswered mail. And some of you who know me personally know that I always have a stack of mail that high that I haven't answered, and that bothers me. It weights me down. And I have a form letter written in case, you know, the Lord takes me before I get them answered. I want everything completed, and I'm not afraid to go. Now, I want to ask you tonight, do you have the kind of faith that says, Lord, Lord, I want that mountain looking forward to the sunset and I want to come and be able to give a report to you and say, Lord, I did what you told me to do down there. I've completed my assignment. Oh, that's the kind of mountain I want. I want the mountain that says, Lord, it's all right. I've completed the work you gave me to do. Paul went to Rome he always wanted to go further. 
He wanted to go to Spain. I don't know whether he ever got there or not. He wanted to go to the western frontier. He wanted to take the gospel to the whole world. And finally he got stuck in a Roman prison. And with great surrender, he wrote to Timothy, Timothy, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. It's not how you began, but how you finished the race that counts. In our RA work, years ago, I used to work closely. I was a counselor. I was a counselor at Camp Joy. I like what Brother Bob does over there running the Camp Joy camp every summer, the RA camp. I used to do that, Robert. And we used to have our track meets. And it was always interesting to me to take our boys out to, we went out to Warren Central Field and used their field. And it was always interesting to me to see those guys run, how they would sprint and they'd take off. And I'd try to warn them, fellas, it's not how you start, but how you finish the race that counts. And one day we had some guys running and they were just running. And there was one guy that stood head and shoulders above everybody else and he was just running along, running along, you know. And he got so confident, he looked around, nobody was there. So he started looking back, back there at them. And before long, somebody took over, overtook him. <laughs> and they just won the race because he looked back. It's not how you start, but how you finish that's important. And young people, middle-aged people, kids, adults, anybody can make a big splash. But it's how you cross the finish line that's important. What you do with the remainder of your life from this moment on, that's important. And we don't reach the safety zone or the end zone until we get home. We don't complete the task until it's all over. And we've crossed the finish line and we've heard the well done of the Lord. That's the important thing. And I want to say tonight, Lord, I want that mountain. I want to finish the course and say I kept the faith. The only way to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. And when, we fill, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the living God is upon us, and he empowers us. We can't look back. Lord, to whom should we go? We can't hunger and hanker after the old, tawdry, cheap things. But we'll ever look forward, going up and up and up for the path of the just leads, leads on and on to the perfect day. Have you come to the end of a perfect day? And you sit alone with your thoughts. What will it be then? Will you have to look back with deep regret? Or can you say, Lord, Lord, I'm ready for the new assignment over there. Now listen, if you have never been saved, if you've never received Jesus, you can't be ready for the other assignment. The only assignment you'll receive is hell and eternal separation from God. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God wants to save to the uttermost all who will come to God by Him. And if you'll come tonight by faith, He'll save you and forgive you. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, 
We thank you for the challenge of Caleb. Help us to set our heart, our mind, our eyes toward that mountain, Mount Zion. Look forward one day to giving the report. I finished the course, I kept the faith. And along the way, I had that mountain of determination on my heart and I tried to do it the best the Holy Spirit could help me. And I had that mountain upon my heart of the Spirit of Jesus to approach life and life's work as Jesus told me to do it. And I had that mountain of the homecoming on my heart. Father, if there are people here tonight who are not saved, and they come to Christ tonight. If there are people who are already saved, but whose lives have been mixed up and confused, or they've gotten out of the main purpose of the will of God for their lives, may they come back to you tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May we stand, please. We're singing God's invitation tonight. Please keep in mind that this is the invitation of Jesus. It isn't mine, it's his. And I want to appeal to you. First of all, if you're not saved, if you're not positive beyond the shadow of a doubt that if your life should end tonight, you'd go to heaven, you're not sure, don't leave this place without being sure. Come to Christ just as you are. Will you do it? It isn't worth the risk walking out of this auditorium and say, well, I'll come next week, next Sunday, some other time. May I plead with you to come to Christ tonight. Now, if you're already saved, or if you've been saved back there some years ago, but your life has gotten out of the will of God, you need to get back to God. Won't you come tonight? Oh, for Christ's sake, He loves you. There's an open heaven. Christ is waiting. And it's not too late. You can start life over, for there's a land of beginning again with Christ. Won't you come to him tonight? Young people, would you lay the strength of your youth before Jesus? Say, here's Lord. Here, Lord, I want to set limitations on my life so that God can use me and have me. While we sing, while we pray, who will come tonight for the King?